This is Saren Kohli. You're listening to We Are All Africans, a safe space for Africans with a wide range of backgrounds to discuss their being in a globalized world. So please take a seat and listen. What's your name and what does it mean? I really don't know. Carol, I'm not sure. I had a grandmother that was named uh, Caroline, so I don't know if that derived from her name. But Sierra Leone was colonized by the British. And then after colonization, there were a lot of missionaries that came in. And then also you had individuals that were returned, uh, former slaves that repatriated back, were repatriated back to Sierra Leone from the Americas, Jamaica, Canada. And so, you know, with slavery, um, they were giving the, their master's name, so to speak. So I really don't know. But yeah, you're right. If someone looks at my name on paper, it's like, Carol Labor. And even if I talk to someone on the phone, they're like, oh, okay, Carol Labor. But they see me, they're like, you're Carol? (laughs) Here's this African woman with big, bushy hair. And it's just like, I don't walk around with my fist in the air, but my conversations, they they mimic that (laughs) because I've learned to uh, speak up. I'm actually learning not to speak up as much because I'm really, I'm tired. I think I've been in fight mode all my life. So now I'm just like really on the down curve of just like, just laying back and becoming this 50-year-old semi-retired woman that's just like, ugh, with the world. (laughs) I would say I'm a product of... My environment, plural, product of an immigrant child that went to America, definitely wasn't prepared for America. Lived in um, predominantly Black communities, African-American communities and not African communities or Sierra Leonean communities. And um, because of my differences, I had challenges in school and the adults You know, in the school system, they kind of just passed me off from one place to another. Teenagehood, young adulthood, motherhood jumped in there. So I'll put it that way. Who am I? I'm an individual with a lot of layers. And at this point in my life, I've, I've started over the last few years, started peeling back the layers to actually find out who am I underneath everything life has thrown at me. Yeah, and I like the woman I'm becoming. So what are the layers that you've built throughout your life and that you're peeling back now? I would say the first layer is a traumatized child. And um, she's still within me. I call her Little Carol. So Little Carol is the first layer. When I went to America, I was beaten up, I was bullied, I was teased because I was African. And that stuck with me. Um, And so that's the primary layer, because uh, when children are traumatized at early ages, you know, it's an adverse childhood experience and it impacts your development. And looking back through the years, who I am now, 
the complexity of who I am is grounded in that. Um, there's a quote that says, be who you needed as a child. And that's who I've become, the person that I needed as a child. I wasn't socialized within the Sierra Leone community and uh, my socialization within the Black American community taught me to shrink from my Africanness in order to fit in. I, uh, even now I meet people and they're like, you're African, you don't sound African. But that was one of the things I needed to do quickly, recognize that as a child was to lose the accent. Because as soon as I opened up my mouth, it was like the shock factor. So I lost my accent quickly. <laughs> lost the accent quickly as a, um, a way to try to fit in. So losing the accent wasn't enough. And why do you think it wasn't enough? Well, I think um, by the time I lost it, the children in school within in the neighborhood, they had already known that I was African. Back then, there wasn't a lot of individuals that went to school outside their communities. So people already knew you know, I was African. My moniker was Black Carol, if you would. And it, it, it stuck with me. It defines who I am, the rejection that I experienced early on as a child. You said that you grew up in predominantly Black communities, yet they called you Black Carol. Why? And I think, one, that's kind of uh, multi-layered as well, because it was the African component, and then because my skin is dark as well, and I'm darker than my siblings. So I really, I don't think any of my siblings experienced what I experienced. My sister fit in very well, but I didn't. Went to 11 different schools, 12 technically on paper, but 11 <laughs> schools. And they didn't protect me. It was kind of like, oh, you know, get over it. Just kids being kids. But this was, this wasn't an isolated incident of, you know, being teased one day. It was every day, every day. And um, it stuck with me. So now I'm very careful. I'm very guarded about who I let in my personal space. You know, I can be the life of the party. I can engage the crowd, but that anxiousness sticks with me. So even if I do a training today, I need to um, debrief, if you would. Tomorrow, I need to take a break because it's just, um, people will look at me and probably think like, what? But I have social anxiety. Because, you know, when I was a kid, walking into a room, it was like, all eyes on me. Oh, she's here. The African booty scratcher is here. Black Carol is here. Shaka Zulu is here. And some people may say, oh, it was so long ago, get over it. But anyone that knows about trauma, it impacts you. It changes you, especially trauma that's experienced within childhood. But learning about trauma and how it has affected my life has really given me another outlook because it's answered my whys. It's answered the whys that I've had growing up.
recently with the George Floyd killing and the whole uprising of individuals fighting systemic racism and calling for justice. In the beginning, I was energized. And then I think it was just after the elections that my energy just drained because good, bad, or indifferent, 70 plus million people agree with the racist and demagoguery that's going on. And you're like, what's the point? What's the point? Well, I'm like, what's the point? How was your upbringing in Sierra Leone and then in the United States? Ethnic groups that I identify with is uh, one Creole. Uh, my paternal grandfather was Creole, but my paternal grandmother was Mandingo. And then from my mother's side, her father was Creole, but he worked in um, like in Mende country. Great, great, great grandmother was Mende as well. So I actually, I would identify as a Creole mixed with Mende and Mandingo. Um, upbringing, what I remember as a child in Sierra Leone, just my early memories were um, just happiness. You know, I had a friend and she still, she lives here and it's so nice to catch up with her at times. Um, my father was a journalist, a very prominent journalist, so... We had a good life. We had nannies and drivers, chauffeurs or whatever. And my parents are both college educated. And mind you, this is in the early 70s. And one thing I said to my mom recently, when all this racial justice, um, I said to her, what were, what were you and dad doing? You know, doing the 50s and 60s. And she said, we were traveling the world. I'm like, huh? And all of that was going on in America. And it, so the disconnect, the disconnect is definitely there, even between Black Africans and, and Black African-Americans, because like my parents and a lot of other people, they were, you know, sailing off to England, sailing off to China. And here the struggle for equality, the struggle for freedom in itself was going on in the United States. So um, my upbringing here was good. Uh and because of political, I want to say political uh, unrest, they threatened to arrest my father to come get him in the middle of the night. So we kind of escaped to Liberia, left everything behind, home, clothes, everything, until we were able to get paperwork to go to America. And then America, again, you know, my parents were college educated here, you know, in Sierra Leone, where I am now. But when they got to America, it was a whole nother ball game because they basically left everything behind. So they had to start over with us. And thank God they were able to provide us with a stable home, family life. And I want to venture to say outside of my siblings, you know, teasing me <laughs> at times, our home was, uh, you know, it was good. But when I stepped outside, it was like, oh, my God. Here we go. That anxiety, that everyday anxiety. I just imagine a five-year-old child, trauma, anxiety, things like that. It comes out, especially in children, within their behaviors. So I started acting out, talking in class and trying to get accepted. And I would get suspended and eventually kick out of school. So I kind of learned there's a lot of gaps within my education. In addition to living with the trauma you know, I had taught myself a lot of things. 
even when it comes down to writing in cursive, I write in a very peculiar way is because no one ever taught me how to string my letters together. So there's the layers and, you know, just unpacking it over the years. But I feel lighter, but at times I feel cheated because I didn't have a healthy childhood. Um, I still know some of the individuals that I, you know, grew up with and we interact on social media sometimes, but like, I'm not close to any one particular person that I grew up with because that memory is still there. I went into a shell. I've read all the time, like the library was my place of solace, my place of peace. I would go and read and dream (laughs) about a world outside of the traumas that I was being exposed to. But then other side of that, I would act out in terms of just being very mouthy in school, not at home, of course, you know, African parents were not having that, (laughs) but just mouthy because I had to fight for myself from a very early age fight for who I am and not what the world wanted me to be. And that fight just continued into my teenage years. Again, you know, moving from school to school, because at some point they ran out of neighborhood schools to send me to. So I had to get bused, if you would, to uh, schools outside of the neighborhood, teenage years and... (sighs) being raped and uh, I mean yeah it was just like okay what's next I think the world just said let's throw everything at her let's just throw everything at her I really think it was just like all right what's next so (sighs) an experience like I say it now but back then definitely didn't talk about it and even now I talk about it just to I mention it but I don't go into detail because there's so many people whose lives have been affected by it. But I'm still unpacking the layers with you, huh? I think for me, I just really went within. I spent a lot of time in my room. And it's interesting, as an adult now, I spend a lot of time in my room. I spend a lot of time alone because that's how it was. Because the minute I stepped out that door, somebody was going to say something. I went within. And then as I got older, I got angrier. I got cocky because at some point I recognized that outside the gaps in my education, I was smart. So it was really like, okay, okay. So let me use my brain um, to my advantage. So I would get A's in school in grades and then like F's, which is the lowest you can get in behavior. And no one said, hmm, that's strange. I think my parents, you know, they were working to make a life for us. And it was really like, oh, that's Carol being Carol. What is your migration story? You know, leaving Sierra Leone as a child, of course, I had no control over that. But I really believe that was the last time that I was happy, content, 
that I could be who I am, which is a dark-skinned African woman or African girl at the time. And so throughout my years in America, it was like I had to prove myself. And then I think later on, my teen years, 19 and up, I was a mother by that time. And that's when I started again. You know, when you're young, you have to go to African parties with your parents. You have to go to weddings and things like that. But when we were old enough to say, oh, mom, mom, dad, can we stay home? You know, we did. And so it was like when I was about 19, my cousin came from Sierra Leone and she stayed with us. And that's when I started going to adult Sierra Leone parties. And that's when I started like um, socializing within the Sierra Leone community. Still, you know, within the Black American community, I was the African girl. And this was before being African became cool. I remember my mom used to thread our hair, use carpet thread. And now it's like a style, but oh, those kids were ferocious. So it was literally, you're crying like, mom, please don't dress me like that. Please let me just try to blend in as much as I can. But when I started socializing in the African community, it was just like, wow all these black, beautiful women of different shades. And it was just like, wow. But then it was, oh, mm, who's she? <laughs> Who, who's, the, who's this Afro among us? Yeah. So it was kind of, it was like, who's this black American that's in our community? Who's this black American? So it's just like, <laughs> can I get a break? But... You talk about migration, all of that is shaped me. And I was married and through my marriage, divorce, I never, I never really fit in anywhere. I really, I didn't fit in with the black American community. I didn't really fit in with the African Sierra Leonean community. But as I got older and appreciated my African self more and more, I mean, I started tying my head to work in the 90s, I would wrap my head going to work because now I'm proud of who I am, wrapping my head, wearing my African attire to work in the 90s, wearing natural hairstyles to work. And I've had some great jobs. So I've never uh, shrunk from my Africanness. So just within the last years, you know, my father died, may his soul rest in peace in 2006. And my mom just turned 81 the other day. So I'm thinking, you know, she's there by herself, had a discussion with my partner, had a discussion with my ex-husband, had a discussion with my children. And, you know, I'm like, I'm going back and um, made the decision, planned it. I actually uh, did a vision board back in 2016. And uh, the last thing on there that I had to check off, it said, Africa move 2020. And so it was already on my to-do list, if you would. But when COVID happened, I'm like, oh, I'm out. My mom's sister passed and her children couldn't get to Sierra Leone because they closed the airports. And so part of that was, God forbid, if something happens to my mother and I can't be there. So that fear, I mean, I live in a perpetual state of fear because it's ingrained in me from experiencing trauma as a child. So that fear... But I'll tell you, I came here and it's the best thing that I could have done for my soul. It's the best thing I could have done for my soul. I mean, some days I'm just sitting on the couch with my mother and we're watching Indian movies. <laughs> but it's the best thing that 
like my soul is satisfied. Not That doesn't say that my life is perfect. That doesn't say that I don't still deal with my traumas on a daily basis. And one of the things that developed because of my traumas is major depression. People look at me like, oh, you're always smiling. But I deal with depression every day. Some days I can't get out of bed and I don't. So that's the beauty in um, becoming who I am and recognizing my limitations at time, recognizing my strengths and moving back to the continent where I'm allowed, so to speak, to be African. I'm free to be African. And not saying that people aren't free to be African in the States or in Europe or whatever. But for me, my experience, my exposure, I've been able to unpack layers and layers of trauma that I've experienced. Trauma that I, some I don't even talk about. Some I'll very well take to my grave, but it's within me. But here I'm able to breathe. When did you realize you were African? I didn't know I was African until someone called me an African with a negative connotation. A kid. Yeah. I, because up to then, we didn't talk about being Sierra Leonean and things like that. But it wasn't until I went to America as a five-year-old kid. That's when I knew I was African, when I was teased about being an African. But as an adult, a young adult, the age of 19, again, when I started socializing within the Sierra Leone community and my Africanness, so to speak, was accepted to a degree once they knew I wasn't a fraud. <laughs> and it's interesting because when I talk about being an African, I speak my language. My native language is uh, Creole, which is a derivative of English, some Patois, French is in there. But I didn't speak it I had to relearn how to speak it at the age of 19 when my cousin came to live because I always understood it. I stopped speaking it. I needed to change my tongue. But at the age of 19, that's when things shifted. And I came into my own as being an African and being proud. Well, not say proud. I'm not going to say I was. I've always been proud as an African. And I think that was really... uh, People wanted to make me ashamed of being an African or who I am. Like, oh, you're too proud. You think you're better. You know, so we're going to bring you down a notch. But I relearned how to speak my um, Creole. But even now when I speak it, people are like, "Mm." (laughs) and of course, there's some words that, you know, I I struggle with like, uh, what does that mean? Yeah, like, come on, explain that one to me. <laughs> so, yeah, but I think discovering the beauty of being an African woman, because up until from five to 19, I was fighting to be African, to stay African, to hold on to being an African. But at 19, my life shifted. The trajectory of my life shifted. And it was like, oh, okay. And I started wrapping my hair, tying my head, going to work and things like that. You know, taking my fufu in the lunchroom and people like, ew, what's that smell? (laughs) But then had, you know, my American friends, you know, they cooking uh, uh, fufu, cassava leaves and things like that. 
So it was relearning a lot of unlearning and learning, which I'm still doing, which I'm still doing, but embracing who I am as an African woman, embracing my expertise as an African woman, because here in Sierra Leone, and I'm sure in other African countries, there are a lot of expats that are called in to do the work that there's a gap, you know, gap services, so to speak. But having the an over 30 year career in the States and then now being back here, it just one makes me appreciate it more because I can directly um, lend my expertise. I can speak the language um, for individuals that prefer to speak Creole. And part of what I do is really I tell my story. I tell my story and I educate folks on the impact of trauma. So it's just like my life has come full circle. My life has come full circle. What does it mean for you to be African? To be free, to be me, free to be me, to embrace my culture, embrace my language, embrace the diversity of being a Sierra Leonean, because there's a lot of different tribes in Sierra Leone. You have Mende, Mandingo, Fula, Timini, Limba, Karankal. You have Creoles that are um, derived from the ex-slaves. So there's a mixture and the cultures have, in some aspect, blended together. And really just every day seeing people that look like me, seeing mothers raising their children, seeing women walking down the street with their market on their heads, a child pulled on their back. And it's just part of who we are. And the reality of being an African, the reality of being allowed to be who we are here and not having the pressures of racism to an extent, because I will venture to say that there is racism. You have some non-Africans that are here. I alluded to it earlier that have disdain for us. So it exists but with a limit, with a limit. And the beauty also of the expats that are here, the Caucasians that are here and how they're embracing our culture as well. Definitely, it means being free and away from America and their long-standing history of injustices, racism. And for me, free from my experience as a child. Do you think that little Carol came back when you decided to go back to Sierra Leone? Uh, no, I would say little Carol has been, I've been taking care of her since I was a child, protecting her, trying to protect her, shielding her. I mean, we all have our younger selves within us that we continue to nurture. It's who we are. I think it's something with individuals that suffer from depression. Happiness is kind of like foreign. <laughs> like, uh, you know, in some days it's like, can I smile today? Can I manage a smile? 
And it's like, oh, that's it for, okay, I smiled today. That's it for me. Let's try again tomorrow. But then some days it's like, oh, I'm on top of my game. I'm going to do this. So it's really about riding the wave. And I think part of becoming who I am as an African woman is learning myself, learning what makes me tick. And so when you talk about little Carol, it's really right now what, what little Carol needed was to be back in this environment. When you talk about migration and, and being just a, ref, a stranger, a refugee in America, a stranger in America for 45 years almost. I started being vocal about trauma and depression, I want to say like really around 2014. And oh boy, that was an experience within itself. People, you know, I would write about it on Facebook. People will call my mom, oh, don't crease, like Carol's crazy. <laughs> call my partner, oh, she wrote this and this on Facebook. And even with my partner explaining to him, he would just say, I don't understand, but I'm listening. So even with him, just educating him, you know, like, no, people that are dealing with depression aren't crazy. But fast forward to now and everyone's on social media talking about self-care. I'm like, oh, wow, my how times have changed. (laughs) And I think people are recognizing because trauma, trauma is so widespread even within the social context of Sierra Leone, trauma is so widespread. But I think in just historically, we have dealt with trauma by not dealing with it, by not discussing it, by not bringing it up. And so there's definitely a gap in services. So now what's happening, people are discussing mental health and there's individuals that are like, doing trainings and try, but it's kind of like, where are you getting your information from? Because like Sierra Leone doesn't have any standard guidelines or what exactly mental health and psychosocial support looks like. What does it look like? What does therapy look like in the context of African countries within the context of our diverse communities? And you still, there's so much that's happening within the country here. There's so much domestic violence. There's so much intimate partner violence. There's so much sexual and gender-based violence. Thousands of girls and women, babies are raped, penetrated every year, all of which can cause trauma. So until you deal with the environmental factors, there's poverty within African countries, um, environmental factors, socioeconomic factors that are all contributing to the social determinants of health within Sierra Leone. And then that's layered with hundreds of thousands of people that died during the Civil War, Ebola, the shame, the stigma, the mudslide and the children and families that were lost on the mudslide and all of that coupled with day-to-day life. Sometimes I'll drive in by and you'll see 
children in a in in children in a creek, like in a river. And not, this has nothing to do with politics or whatever, because every government that comes, the same river is there. But I mean, you can't change a river, but it's a river. It's obviously polluted. There's pigs in a river. Children are bathing in a river. People are washing clothes in a river. So when you look at all of those contributing factors that are happening within the space of Sierra Leone and then Again, the gap in services. So I do what I can. I discuss it. I talk about the need to expand community discussions, community dialogue around mental health and what it actually looks like. People may say, oh, there are psychologists, there are psychiatrists, there are this, but there's like no certifying body within the country. So there's a lot to be done. I'm not the one to do it. (laughs) <laughs> because now I think not to be cliche-ish using becoming, but the woman that I'm becoming is just like, okay, I'm going to do what I can and I'm going to take care of me, my trauma, my depression. I have migraine headache. I had a headache recently, 17 days straight, the migraine wouldn't break. So I've never been a superwoman, like one of those women that like, we have to work hard, work hard. No, my motto is like, work smart but get it done. Work smart, work efficiently. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to um, overwork yourself, overstress yourself. But again, this is me as a uh, almost 50-year-old woman with a 30-year career in America. So here, I'm just like, I have nothing to prove. I don't want to be anyone's minister. I'm not giving up my uh, American citizenship. (laughs) I'm not jumping into politics. I'm just going to be me. So, yeah. So I think um, just educating people where I can about it. I think there's a lot of psychoeducation that needs to be done because people would just say, oh, that person's crazy. But what does that mean? There's a difference between depression and psychosis. There's a difference between depression and anxiety. Some people may have comorbid depression. They depressed and anxious. Throughout the years, throughout all these uh, horrific events that have happened in Africa, in Sierra Leone, and even if you talk about Somalia, Liberia, all these different countries that have suffered trauma and still no one's addressing it. And when I say no one's addressing it is not top level campaigns and but actual services that meet the individuals that most need it. Even down to just teaching people coping skills, coping strategies. How do you deal with different issues that come up? Because again, within our community, people aren't talking about it like they should. Just last week, I heard about a 18-year-old kid that committed suicide. Last month, I heard about a woman here, here in Sierra Leone, that committed suicide. So suicide and suicidal ideation is a big issue within our country, but like there's no statistics. There's one psychiatric hospital here, but that's really for individuals that need to be hospitalized. So it's from one extreme to another, no services or you're hospitalized and put on meds. So until we're honest with each other, honest with ourselves about uh, our mental health and things, the contributing factors that impact our mental health. I mean, I see so many women that are in 
relationships, situationships, whatever you want to call it, that are toxic, unhealthy. But because of our culture, that's like, oh, you you have to be married. You have to have children. We don't allow these women to live or we don't allow them to leave. And so you have an increasing amount of women that are dealing with depression, anxiety, an increasing amount of women that are committing suicide rather than deal with the shame of being divorced. And so until we let women live and we let them leave, it's just a vicious cycle. There's different stages of behavioral change. And the first is really acknowledging it. So until we acknowledge that there are issues within our societies, within our communities, within our Africanness that says, oh, we have to be Mrs. Madame. You know, we have to be in the house. <laughs> no, it's okay. I remember when I made the decision to get a divorce, my sons were one, five, and nine. And it was like, eh, eh, e, where you going? <laughs> I mean, I was ridiculed. I was criticized. I was, but that brought me further into my shell and my little protected bubble. But it's like, um, no. And because again, I wasn't socialized within the Sierra Leone community. So my Black American friends was like, oh, we got you. We got you. <laughs> you need us to help you move. You know, where my African friends was like, oh, beer. I, I don't even know what the, what is, I don't even know what beer translates to. Like, mm, I don't know. Like they would say not for beer. Like really accept it. I mean, even with my partner now, I'd rather be single and happy than in a relationship and unhappy. Because at the end of the day, whether you're stressed, burnt out, depressed, have experienced trauma, it comes out. And within the context of relationships, adversity, other women, other children, a betrayal, lies, all of that impacts individuals, your mental health and your psyche. And even if we want to say, oh, we're strong African women, we're not thinking about it. Trauma comes out. Depression comes out. It's either going to impact you psychologically or physiologically, either your mind or your body, but it's going to impact you. It's going to come out in your behaviors, the way that you interact with individuals. This is an old song, but it's like it's a rap song, but it's like not just a, a I'm something. I'm not just a client. I'm the, I'm the player president, which is really just loosely interpreted. So like, I've lived this, I've lived it. And that's why I can talk about it and speak about it with authority because I've lived it. I've lived it. I've learned it. I've educated myself on it. And now it's hope, no holds bar in the woman I'm becoming. No, if you're toxic, you got to go. We need to strive to live healthy lives and manage what we can control and let things outside of our control go. We can't control systemic racism. We can't control the behaviors of others, the actions of others, but we can control our circle and what we allow in our space. You are a mother of four and you had all your children in the United States. 
How did you manage to make them embrace their Africanness? You know, my three sons, they're the younger ones. And I have a daughter, she'll be 31 years old soon. So my mother played a big role early on with my daughter and then my first son. And um, being an African and letting them know that you're African or first generation uh, African-Americans, but your parents are African, your grandparents are African, this is your lineage, was very important to me. So I still speak my language to them from infancy. I've spoken my language to them. They understand it. They don't speak it except for um, sarcastic words. <laughs> but, you know, they do understand it. They love peanut butter soup. Cassava. They love, you know, African food. But one of the things um, my, uh, I don't want to say fear, my apprehension is when they start marrying and having children, their Africanness, it's going to be lost. It's kind of, you know, in a few generations down the line, it's, it's going to be lost because now how do we hold on to our Africanness in terms of the generations that are coming behind us that are not in Africa? So that's a challenge. But right here in Sierra Leone, I'm so impressed. There's so many people that live here that have had opportunities to go abroad, but they've come back. They're raising their children here. Their children are thriving. And it's a beautiful thing. If individuals have no plans on moving to America or Canada, they're here, they're thriving and they're raising their children. I'm just becoming who I am, where I'm from. And my life's just come full circle that I'm in this place, in this position that I can totally embrace my Africanness. Once I learned that being African was my superpower, I never looked back. I fought, lobbied, advocated from the White House to U.S. Congress, the Senate, the Pennsylvania House, the Pennsylvania Senate, the Black congressional leaders fighting for African kids, fighting for equality in terms of Title III, which Title III is just federal funding that they give to other immigrant students. So I've walked the walk. I've walked the walk. I've been blacklisted standing up for myself, but I'm here. Yeah, oh, I'm here. I'm here. So that's why now I'm like, I don't, nothing phases me and I've put in the work. And so now it's just about reaching back and helping the next generation. I put in the work and I think finding my superpower, again, it doesn't mean I'm superior to anyone. It's just that strength, finding my strength, where my strength lies, and it's being an African woman. Thank you so much, Carol, for sharing your powerful story with us. Thank you so much for opening the conversation about mental health, trauma, and depression. Thank you, and I hope that you are safe, healthy, and content. Sound editing, Emiliano Matos. This is Saren Coley. You're listening to We Are All Africans. See you next Wednesday en français.